Good morning, family. Welcome again to River Valley Community Church. We're so excited for everyone to be here with us. Thank you, band, for helping lead us in, uh, in songs. Yeah, give it up. You guys always do a great job. Thank you, Bruce, for sharing about the, the children's ministry. Um, if you guys do not know, the, one of the reasons I just love River Valley is that people are passionate. Here is overseeing the preschool, and Kate Carius is overseeing the younger kids' uh, uh, departments, rooms, and then all the, all the volunteers. So if you work there, thank you so much for spending your time, giving your energy to that great ministry. It's, it's worthwhile. So if you can convert my heathen son, I would appreciate it. I joke. I just lament. What? <laughs> well, she, she still can't complete, uh, fill, you know, speak complete sentences. Neither can I, but she can't. And so we, there's some time for her, hopefully. Let's, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Father, thank you so much for who you are, how you love us. Lord, I just pray that you continue to uh, work through this morning and through us, through your word. As we open it up, I just pray that it can come to life in our minds and in our hearts, that we understand who you are, that we understand what you're, you're revealing to us, and that we can respond as you would have us respond to who you are. Lord, I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're continuing our journey through the book of John. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn open to John chapter 5. If not, have no fear. It will be on the screen. Starting in verse 1, John chapter 5 says this. And after this, there was a feast of the Jews, and and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there was in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, an Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed, and he walked. Now that day was the Sabbath, so the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterwards, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. I like rules, usually when it suits me, but I like rules. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a part of that segment of the human population that finds comfort in rules. Rules provide a nice little security blanket for a certain group of people who like rules. Rules help them know where they stand in relationship to authority or where they stand in relationship to others. Rules can give them that security about life or maybe the choices 
they made, or even how they rank in society, some people just really like rules, and so they cling to that security. I like rules so much that when I break them, I get really uncomfortable. And here's just a small example. We were in Indianapolis and at a conference, and we're walking back to our hotel, and the, the sidewalk was closed for construction. It was very clearly marked. And yet the people I was with uh, <laughs> wanted to proceed along this, this construction path. And it made me very uncomfortable. And there's a cop there, which made it even more uncomfortable for me because I have visions of me being arrested or giving a ticket for crossing a, a closed sidewalk. Um, you know, I played it cool. I don't know if they could tell I was that like unnerved, but it made my skin crawl because I just had, my worst nightmares would come true. The cop would say, "What are you doing?" And I'm like, I'm, I'm, "I'm down on the ground. Don't hands hands up. Don't shoot. You know, all, all that stuff." So. I like rules. Some people like rules. The Jewish people like their rules. And when there's a certain segment of the whole Jewish people that really like the rules, usually called the Pharisees, but sometimes they're just called the Jews, which is shorthand for the religious leaders. These are people who liked their rules because they, they thought they were pleasing God by following Rules. They thought they could be good enough in God's sight by if they followed the rules. They liked their rules so much that they, they went through the Bible and they said, there's all these rules God gives us, let's follow all those, but that's not enough. Let's put rules upon rules to protect us from not breaking those first rules. And so they would follow all these regulations and all of these ways, and we can paint them with a, with a broad brush saying like these people are, were kind of wrong or they're kind of mean because they always come into opposition with Jesus. But we have to remember these are people usually, generally, trying to honor God and trying to follow God the best they can. And so they, they thought they could do that by following a list of rules. But instead they came into conflict with Jesus because Jesus kept on reminding them that's impossible. Jesus made it clear it's impossible that you think you can earn your way into God's good graces or even stay in God's good graces by following rules. And so they didn't like it. And there's opposition between Jesus and them. And so when we come to this passage, we actually see the first showdown in the Gospel of John between Jesus and these people, and the religious leaders. We've gotten hints of it before in the Gospel of John, where he hears that the Pharisees have no, he's baptizing, he's becoming popular, and so Jesus kind of makes his way around, and so he's not looking for that confrontation yet. But here at the beginning of chapter 5 is the first confrontation that kind of sets the stage for the whole rest of the confrontations that happen in the book of John as Jesus confronts these religious leaders, these Pharisees, about their rules. And he does this, by displaying who he is through healing. And to summarize what I would say we see in this passage is this fact. Jesus displays his equality with the Father by healing on the Sabbath. It's a long, but it's a summary of this idea that Jesus is displaying who he is. He has equality with the Father. He's equal with God. And how does he do it? He does it by healing a man on the Sabbath. Because Jesus does his healing that we see here in the, uh, John chapter 5. And when Jesus does a healing, it's always because he has mercy on someone. He's moved by compassion for them. But there's always this other motive too that shows who he is. That he uses his healings as a dramatic backdrop to display or teach 
about who he is. And so he's doing the same thing here when he intentionally heals on the Sabbath to stir up controversy with these people to speak about who he is, that he has a right to do this, that Jesus displays his equality with the Father by healing on the Sabbath. So let's look at this passage and see how this happens. And we start with the fact that Jesus heals a man who's been an invalid for 38 years. So Jesus visits Jerusalem. He's back in Jerusalem. And he's there because there's a feast going on. We don't know what feast it is happening. But he shows up. And we, that kind of gives us a reason why he's coming back to Jerusalem is that there's a festival for the Jews, a religious festival, and he's there. And he goes by the Sheep Gate, which is in northern Jerusalem. And close to that location, there's these pools called uh, Bethesda. And there, around these pools are these five roof colonnades, and people would bring their invalids, their relatives, their friends who were lame, blind, or paralyzed, who kind of had no hope, and they would bring them there, and they would lay them by these pools. Because there's this common thought that these pools that uh, extra-biblical sources say are kind of reddish in color maybe, and every now and then they would kind of bubble, get stirred up, had some kind of medicinal value. That if you were the first person into the water after the, the water was stirred up, you would be healed. Now, we have no records if they actually had medicinal value, but people thought that because they were fed by some springs and some aquifers, and we should be used to that. We live in a state that has several towns that used to promote, you know, that they had springs that were, had medicinal value. You know, drink this water and you'll be healed. And so people had this belief that these pools were somehow special and could heal them. Some other people kind of would say, no, it's not that the spring itself, but that an angel would stir up the water, and if they did that, then you can go in there and, and be healed. And we see that actually from verse 4, which if you have a Bible, it would be interesting if you can find verse 4, because chances are most of you can't. Now everyone's freaked out. Where's verse 4? So this is a quick aside, because I have to mention it because it's not there. So there's, there's the thing we have to realize is that uh, verse 4, is this is an account of the, how an angel would stir up the water, and if someone goes in there, they would be healed. And that kind of gives credence to this other thought of why it would be healing pool. But it's not in our modern translations, because our modern translations do a really good job. They go back to the earliest manuscripts we can find. And they compile all the evidence, and we're actually really confident in the scholarly work done there to get us close to, as close as we possibly can to the original writings of John here or of the other authors of the Bible. But there have been additions throughout time that have cropped up, and so we have to understand that, that we go back there, and so the ESV in particular goes back, and they say this, verse 4, was probably a later edition because it was not in the earliest manuscripts we have. We were like, well, why is, why is there still, they just skipped verse 4? Because you have to understand that the, the verses and the chapter numberings are not divinely inspired. They're actually a very late edition. They came back, they came around in like 1551. But now that they're kind of codified into our standard, it would be really confusing if they all of a sudden renumbered the whole rest of the chapter. And so it just makes more sense to take out verse 4, because chances are when you read this, you didn't even notice there was no verse 4. But just want to give you that understanding that our, we can trust the scripture we have because of all the scholarly input that's put in there going back to the latest 
um, the earliest manuscripts possible. Nerd, nerd time's over. We'll continue on. But either way, whether it is an angel, which we have no really record of that, or whether they thought it was medicinal, people thought something was in this water. Something was about these pools where if you were the first person in, when the water was stirred, somehow you would be healed. It is here that people would bring all these people, these invalids, these people who had all sorts of ailments and diseases that caused them not to be able to operate in their normal life. They couldn't work. They couldn't do what they're supposed to do. They couldn't do their trades. And so they were brought here by their family and friends with just some kind of hope that maybe they would be the first person in the water to receive a healing. And it's to this multitude of people who are sick that Jesus walks up, sees one particular guy, and asks, I think, the craziest question. Do you want to be healed? Put yourself in that guy's situation. I've been an invalid for 38 years. I am in despair. I am hopeless. And now this guy asked me, do you want to be healed? Man, I want to be healed. That's why I'm here waiting for someone to roll me into the pool so I could be healed. And you can kind of see a crotchety old madness come back in his, his response to Jesus when he says, Sir, I can't get into the pool Fast enough, someone else steps down before me. You see the hopelessness. You see the desperation. And I think you really see some resonation in his response and his, that he's just res- resigned to what is happening. He's so resigned to his circumstance that he's oblivious to who Jesus is. That when the master physician who people already have heard, they've been speaking about how he's doing these wondrous things, wondrous things, healing people, shows up and asks him, do you want to be healed? What is his response? I can't get in this water. I can't do it. That's the same obliviousness of someone standing in a burning house and a fireman is at the window screaming, do you want to be saved? And the guy's like, well, my fire extinguisher won't work. It's absurd that he doesn't even recognize possibly that Jesus is more than he might appear, that when he's asking this question, there's hope being offered. But we can't be that critical because so often we are the same as this man, oblivious to the fact that Jesus offers hope. I don't know if you're like me, but so often I can be just focused on my problems. I can be navel gazing the, the reality of my, of my circumstances that I don't stop and I don't look up to see the wondrous fact that Jesus is here asking for him to heal me, to be with me, to help me, to guide me. And Jesus asked this question of this man, do you want to be healed? And he asked the same question to us do you want to be healed? And we know the truth on the other side of the cross that when he asks this question, it's not just about physical healing. It's about that deepest, most severe problem we have, sin, that when Jesus says, do you want to be healed? He's saying, do you want to be healed from your separation from God? Do you want to be healed from the problem that's causing all the conflict in your life? Do you want to be healed from the pain and turmoil of this life? Do you want to be healed from what is keeping you from who you're supposed to be in me and in with God? Do you want to be healed? So Jesus, we don't, we don't see the man even saying yes. 
How does Jesus respond to a crotchety old man saying, I can't get in the pool? Get up. Take up your mat and walk. He heals them with a word. He heals them when he had no hope. He heals this man, and the man gets up, and seemingly the man just walks away. So why did Jesus heal this man? Was it because this invalid somehow was better than all the other sick people under the the colonnades there around these pools? No. In fact, let's look at who this man is through this through this passage, and he doesn't paint that really good picture of this man. First of all, this man, uh, <clears throat> he kind of is is a, the grumbling response to Jesus shows that he's not really aware of who Jesus is and he's oblivious to him. Not only that, but when he's healed, it doesn't show the man turning to Jesus and saying, thank you, this is nice, I can walk and carry my mat now. No, he just kind of picks up his mat and walks away. When the Jewish authorities see him doing this and they say, hey, it's not lawful for you to do this on the Sabbath, what is his response? Oh, that man, that guy who healed me, he told me to do it. He's kind of pushing the blame. He doesn't want to get into a confrontation with the religious leaders. He's like, hey, is this this guy who did that? Go for him. He's so oblivious that he didn't even check to see what Jesus' name was. That when they came and say, who did this? He's like, I don't know. Some dude walked up and said, get up and walk, and I did. He's still kind of oblivious to who Jesus is. Not only that, but when Jesus shows back up into his life at the temple and reveals himself to him, what does he do? He runs and tells the Jewish authority figures, it was Jesus. He rats Jesus out. There is nothing in this man that would make Jesus heal them, heal him. He is the least deserving of being healed. And I don't know about you, but that gives me so much hope. It gives me so much hope that God and Jesus do not act based on my goodness. God and Jesus do not act based on my deserving. And that is good news for me because I am not good and I don't deserve it. This is so much good news because I don't deserve for Jesus to save me, yet he does. I don't merit him to bring me new life or to him for love me, yet he does. You are not good enough to meet God's standards, and yet he saves you and brings you into his family. That's the good news when we read this and says, I can be just like that man, a crotchety old man, consumed with my old problems, oblivious to who Jesus is, and yet Jesus still breaks into my life and brings me home. Breaks into my life and shows me who he is. He can come into our lives and reveal himself in the same way. So there's tremendous hope in that. But there's also a warning in this passage connected to the healing. And that warning is found in Jesus, sometimes hard to understand, saying, when he sees the man again in the temple, what does he say to him? See, excuse me, you are well. Sin no more, let me get this right, sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. This is a phrase that is confusing to me. Because Jesus is now seeming to link this man's sin with this man's illness. How does that work? 
Well, let's give some background. We know theologically when we understand how God made the world, he made it good, but then the sin entered, sin entered through Adam and Eve's rebellion. So we know that sickness, ailments, tragedy, they're all a result of sin in some form and fashion, that we brought brokenness to this world. And because now we live in a broken, rebellious universe, sin, um, um, illness and ailments and tragedy will be a natural part of our life. And so we can see that all illnesses are in some way from sin. And we also know, even from later in this book, in John 9, Jesus heals a man blind from birth. And his disciples ask, whose sin caused this man to be born blind? And Jesus says, no one's. And so we see that, that generally speaking, in most circumstances, we can't say one person's specific sin caused this specific ailment. But what we also know that there are some ailments or problems or tragedies that happen as a direct cause of sin. If you get HIV from sleeping around, that's a direct cause from sin, a disease. If you break your back from drunk driving, that's a direct problem caused from sin. And so we have to wrestle with this, and when we come to Jesus saying, see, you are well, sin no more, so that nothing worse may happen to you, he might be connecting that this man's sin was related to his ailment and saying, don't do it again so that you result in the same place, but also don't do it again because something worse is the judgment that is coming. So don't sin because there's judgment that is coming for all of those who do. And so when we compile all this, I think we can really make the case that we take now that there's a warning in Jesus' phrase, a warning that says that all ailments, all tragedy, all um, illnesses that we experience in life, they are a call for all of humanity to repent. They're a call for humanity to recognize that there's brokenness in this world. That when Jesus is kicked, uh, saying, this, saying this phrase that he's saying, these things should remind us that the world is not how it's supposed to be. And they remind us that we're all sinners and that we're all in need of salvation. And so we repent of our sin, even if, it's, if our ailments or our treasury are not directly tied to our sin, we repent of our sin because we know we all have a need to be saved. And so in this hard saying of Jesus, we see that he heals us and he, he heals this man. He warns the man away from sin. He heals us from sin and he warns us to stay in him. He's warning us away from sin because there is a judgment that is coming and thanks be to God that if we know Jesus, we're safe in him from that judgment because he has taken the price, the debt for our sin. So this healing is another miracle and a sign of Jesus pointing to who he is, that he's healing, that he is the Lord over sicknesses, and that, the, that God even uses the brokenness of this world as a way to point us back to our need of him. And we know some things about this healing that are true that cannot be in doubt, and that is that when Jesus healed this man, it was not fake. It was real. When Jesus healed this man, he got up, and he walked. No one disputes this claim. No one said, oh, excuse me, he was a plant. You know this guy. He's from Nazareth, Nazareth too, and he brought him down here, and it's just a fake healing. No, Jesus healed this guy who he didn't know, and he was healed. 
is a true healing. And this has tremendous hopes for us because when Jesus enters our life, it's not just the near over our life. It's not just surface level. That he truly is in our life and changes who we are and how we see him. We also see that this healing is free. As I said, this man didn't deserve it. This man didn't pay Jesus for it. In fact, we see an old embittered man who's broken and helpless and can bring nothing to the table, and yet Jesus heals him. It's the same for us. That we're hopeless and broken on our own. Yet Jesus can enter into lives and can do the same and heal us and bring us to him. And we see that this healing is full. Jesus says a word, and this man is healed. He didn't say, get up, take up your mat, and walk. And this man says, well, let me regain my strength. Let me have a good hearty meal, and I'll be able to do this. No, he says it. The man jumps up. He's not been able to move right for 38 years, and yet he, now he can jump up, grab up his bed, and walk away. Imagine he whistled probably when he did it. Jesus' healing was full, complete. And so that gives us hope that when Jesus comes into our lives, it's not like he's just going to tweak us a little bit or change us a little bit. No, he totally transforms who we are to the very core of our affections and our hearts. He makes us new and gives us full renewness in him. And I love this because through this healing, Jesus also displays who he is. Not only that he is Lord over illness, but he's the Lord of the Sabbath as well. For here he comes and he does it, I would say intentionally, on the Sabbath. And the religious leaders were not happy about this. So that's the other point of the story is that we see that they claim that this man broke the Sabbath. They claim Jesus was breaking the Sabbath. And so if you, if you know anything about the Sabbath, the Sabbath is the fourth commandment in the Ten Commandments, codified into the Jewish law, that for six days people would work, and the seventh day they would take a day of rest to worship God and also to rest from their normal labor. The, at the heart of the Sabbath was this idea that you would take a rest from your normal employment to worship God and kind of recharge your batteries to go back out and work. So that if you are a carpenter on that seventh day, you don't swing that hammer. If you are a farmer on that seventh day, you don't go out to your fields. If you were a brickmaker on that seventh day, you don't light that oven. You wouldn't do your normal work. And that was at the heart of the Sabbath. But then, as I said, these people who loved their rules, they came in later and they said, well, we need to protect this Sabbath more because some people seem to be kind of towing close to breaking it. So let's put some rules around it. Let's put some regulations around it so people would never even come close to breaking it. And so they would ask some really kind of religious-sounding good questions like, well, what is work anyways? And what is rest? And so these people would make these rules, these extra regulations that would even dictate how much someone can carry how far they could walk on the Sabbath, you know, what is okay, what's a weight limit for someone to pick up, all these rules just to protect this command that God gives us to rest on that seventh day. And it's this perversion of the Sabbath, these extra rules that Jesus is really confronting. He's really confronting the religious leaders and their, their overburdening of people on these rules that God never gave to them. Because when you look at this, when you consider the Sabbath and look at this account, who broke 
the Sabbath in the story? I would argue no one did. They might have broken those extra biblical rules, but no one broke the Sabbath. Because at his heart, the guy getting up, picking up his mat, and walking home, seems like he walked to the temple too, so he's actually maybe fulfilling the Sabbath, going and praising God. Did nothing to violate the heart of the Sabbath. Jesus doing an act of mercy by healing something actually is right along lines with the heart of what the Sabbath was supposed to be about. And so what we see here is that Jesus is not defying God's law. He followed God's law. He submitted himself to God's law. He followed it perfectly. That's our hope, that he did it perfectly so that we have his righteousness. No, he challenges the perversion of God's law that people had made. And so we see that no one truly broke the Sabbath. And so there's this confrontation that takes place between Jesus and and the Jewish religious leaders. And they're arguing about the Sabbath. And so it's interesting. Jesus doesn't say, well, let's go back and see what the Sabbath, the, the fourth commandment says, and let's talk about what the Sabbath is. No, he cuts to the quick. He goes around that right to the core, to the an argument from authority and says, hey, guess what? I'm Lord over the Sabbath. In so many words, he cuts to quit because he makes this statement. He goes, my father is working until now and I am working. He makes a statement where he's now taking my father and they knew what he was saying, that he's taking God, the father, and saying he's my father. He's showing that he's related. There's a personal relationship there. Not only that, he's, he's, he takes a step forth further and says, everything that applies to my father applies to me as well. Because no one would question that God was still working. But now Jesus says, I can work because he is working. If we follow his logic, Jesus is not saying, since God is working, everyone can work on the Sabbath. No, he's saying, since God is working, I can work on the Sabbath. Because I am equal with God. That I am God. And so we see that he's really making a claim to authority here. Instead of talking about what the Sabbath is, he goes straight to the quick and says, look at me for I have authority over this command from God. Authority to break all your small little rules that were never given by God in the first place. Authority to speak the truth for you to you so that you can know who I am. And they understood what he's saying. I love people who claim that Jesus never claimed to be God or that Jesus never showed that he was equal with God. If they read the New Testament, you see the people at the time totally understood what he was saying. There was no doubt in their mind that when he makes this statement, my father is working until now, so I am working too, people understood, oh my goodness, he's claiming to be God. That's why we get verse 18, which is kind of editorial comment from John that says, they understood, this guy's claiming to be God, let's kill him. Because you have to imagine, while we are so used to it, because we know who Jesus is, how earth-shattering this would be for Jesus to step up to, to them and say, hey guys, I speak with authority. Not just the authority of a prophet given a word by God, which they would have been used to, even if they might not like it, but I speak with authority as God, given a word by God to give to you as God. And so when I speak, the scriptures speak. When I speak, God is speaking. When I speak, you listen to me. You should bow down and understand me. He was making an argument from authority, and they didn't like it. Not only that, they thought it was blasphemy. He's dishonoring God. How dare this man 
say that he is God. It's an argument from authority that someone is speaking as God. And this is a showdown that now will give context to the rest of Jesus' showdowns with the religious leaders in the Gospel of John. That he's very clear, speaking from authority, saying, you should recognize who I am. And they do not. This is a showdown that happens in our hearts and minds as well. That every single day, we have to decide who is Jesus. Who is he? When we read the Bible, is, do we believe what it says about him? Do we believe Jesus is the Son of God, the, the one sent as promised, the one who speaks with authority? Do we believe that he has a right to take the word of God and apply it to himself? Do we believe he has the right to speak new words and say, this is the word of God, listen to it, for that is where salvation is found? Who is Jesus? Do we believe he is who he claimed he is? Or do we believe he's just someone to be ignored? Who is Jesus. We have to decide that when we look at the scripture. I love in this miracle and how he confronts it, we see who Jesus is. We see that he is the Lord over illnesses, that Jesus can heal, that we can find healing in Jesus, not only in that, but in Jesus, we can find restoration, not only restoration from our physical ailments and the tragedy we experience in this life, but we find restoration with God, our Father, that we can be brought into wholeness of new life with our maker, that we can have security, that when that day comes, when he arrives home, or when we are called home, that we will know that we're in his loving arms and our future is secure. That is the wholeness and restoration that Jesus brings because he's the Lord over sickness. No sin, no illness, no tragedy is greater than who he is. But not only in that, he is the Lord over the Sabbath. That he gives rest. I love his words in Matthew 11, when Jesus looks and says, Come to me, all you who are weak and weary, and you will find rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm humble and gentle in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my teaching is light. Well, my teaching is easy. My burden is light. I love that he says, do you want rest? You can find it in me. Not only that, he doesn't only offer rest. He is our rest. For without Jesus, we spend our whole life trying to prove ourselves. We spend our whole lives proving ourselves to God. God, I'm good enough, aren't I? I did enough, didn't I? I'm good enough, aren't I? Look, don't you love me? On our own, that's where we are. And not only that, we spend our whole lives trying to prove ourselves to our world, to our friends and our families. I've done enough. I've, I've supported you enough. I've achieved the highest enough level in my business. I've done enough. Aren't I good enough? Our whole life is trying to earn and achieve, and we find rest in Jesus. We can put all that down because we know he's done it all. That in him, we have rest for our souls. In him, we are refreshed knowing that he is the only way to God our Father. That he is a true Sabbath in which we long for and we wait for and we have when we know him. Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. But not only that, 
So Jesus is equal with his Father, God the Father. We know that Jesus is Lord of all. He is God. He speaks with authority. He speaks the truthfulness that when he speaks, the scripture is speaking. When scripture is speaking, he is speaking. When he speaks, we follow. We should humble ourselves and know him so we can follow him and find refreshment, restoration, and salvation. This is who Jesus is. And every day, we have to decide, is that who we believe he is and follow? Are we going to ignore who he is and go our own way? Joy leads one way, and that is to destruction. But praise be to God that Jesus displays who he is, that he is equal with the Father, that he's our loving Lord, that he gives restoration and refreshment, and he brings us to his Father as his own. Praise be to him. Join me in prayer.